This is Planetary Radio. Hi again, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Matt Kaplan. Remember flashlights with a button you could push and release to send messages to your buddies? Could an extraterrestrial civilization be using a giant laser to do the same thing? It's possible. Even we Earthlings have the technology within our grasp. Dr. Paul Horowitz is watching for those flashes from afar, and he'll soon be doing so with the biggest telescope in the eastern U.S. He joins us on today's Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts will return with another trivia contest and more fascinating space facts in What's Up. First, though, here's Emily in the sky with diamonds. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, I heard that it actually rains diamonds on Neptune. Is that true? How? We asked Laura Benedetti, who published the Diamonds on Neptune story in Science Magazine, to answer the question. Yes, it's probably true that diamonds rained on Neptune at least early in its history, and possibly still today. The atmospheres of both Uranus and Neptune contain methane, a simple molecule containing carbon. The conditions deep inside these planets are extreme, with very high pressures due to the weight of overlying material and very high temperatures left over from the gravitational energy of planetary formation. In laboratory experiments simulating these extreme conditions, methane becomes unstable and breaks down, and pure carbon is formed as diamond. If the same reaction occurs in the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune, the resulting diamonds would drop like rain or hail, or maybe like grains of sand sinking to the ocean floor. What other weird environments exist in our solar system? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. If you visit Paul Horowitz's website, you'll find a recipe for hot fudge sauce, a scientific paper on the possibility of ice skating, and an audio file with the correct but virtually unknown pronunciation of Hergens, <laughs> as in Christian Hergens or Huygens or however it's pronounced, the Dutch astronomer of long ago. You'll also learn that he's a physics professor. That's Paul Horowitz, not uh, Christian. He's a physics professor at Harvard and that he co-wrote a classic tome titled The Art of Electronics. Jump over to the Planetary Society's website and you hear about Paul's leadership role in a new kind of search for extraterrestrial intelligence, optical SETI. He joins us now on Planetary Radio. Hi, Paul. Hi. So rather than listening, you're looking? That's correct. Um, well, we never were listening because uh, radio waves uh, are also not sound, although people mm. tend to think of, of radio as sound. Uh, but we, we are looking. We're looking for optical flashes of the sort that we would make on Earth with lasers. So you're looking really at the same stuff, electromagnetic, but just much, much higher frequency. Yeah, that's, again, another wavelength that happens to go through the atmosphere satisfactorily. That's why humans have eyes. would do a good job of communication or beaconing between uh, civilizations in the galaxy. And I think you've written that with the technology we have today, we could be sending optical pulses out, what, a thousand light years? We can see... The, the fringes of our galaxy, as long as we stay out of the smoggy plane. Mm -hmm. And we can see other galaxies. In fact, we can see out pretty far to the edge of the universe. So, so space is basically transparent to light. And as you say, um, 
the interesting fact, maybe the fundamental fact here, um, which has been realized by, by pioneers like Charlie Towns for a long time, is that with technology no more advanced than we have now, or only maybe about 10 years in our future, we could make a flash of light, a laser feeding a telescope in the outgoing direction, a flash of light that would be brighter, seen from far away, would be brighter than our own star, that is the sun, mm-hmm. by a factor of 5,000 or 10,000 wow. thereabouts. In other words, we, we, can, we can outshine our star with no problem. So let's turn to what's currently underway, and that is watching for these flashes of light from, uh, from out there. Uh, what is the history of optical SETI? Well, you know, if, if we go back to the turn of the century, that is the turn of the last century, people were talking about uh, looking for, for creatures on Mars and the possibility that they might look for bonfires on Earth and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? People have been talking about this for quite a while. Uh, I think the first serious discussion of, of actually doing such a thing uh, is probably the 19... 19- 61 paper by Schwartz and Towns, which proposed the use of optical masers, as they called them then. They did not like the term laser. Hmm. Um, optical masers as a as a, a potentially interesting way to communicate across uh, a galactic, well, certainly planetary distances, that is our solar system, and potentially galactic distances. I think that uh, there have been some searches by the Russians for uh, pulses of light, uh, Towns in 1983 wrote a paper really fleshing this out in detail, but I think things didn't get seriously going until the 90s when it became apparent from our own progress in laser technology on Earth that this wasn't hokum, this was for real. This was really a plausible and in many ways competitive or equally attractive technique to the use of radio waves for establishing communication. Why would uh, an extraterrestrial civilization choose light wavelengths over radio? Well, you know, you choose, if you want to make a communication, you, you, you do what works well, what you can do and what works well and what uh, might be guessable or searchable for by the other side uh, absent uh, a pre-existing communication. In other words, you, you choose something that's both, both uh, uh, technologically feasible and, and uh, guessable by the intended recipients because they, after all, have not yet had the communication from you. Radio waves are good because, um, at least in our culture they were discovered uh, fairly early on and they're demonstrably terrific for communication but lasers are in many ways simpler devices than complicated radio transmitters the reception of laser pulses is uh, technologically a simpler actually a simpler process uh, something as simple as a photo avalanche detector or a photomultiplier or a hybrid avalanche detector as they're called or a solid state photomultiplier is a, is a very simple device and is, is uh, able to receive these kinds of pulses that we're talking about with rather less complexity and we should, than is required in the radio regime. We should say these devices, photomultipliers and so on, they're basically very sen- very light-sensitive devices for turning a, a pulse of light, in this case, into a little electrical signal? Yeah, that's right. The, the photomultiplier is probably you know, one of the earlier of the very sensitive photo devices. I, I, it goes back at least 50 years. It's extremely simple, and it's able to detect single photons of light with reasonable efficiency, about 25%. And it has a very low uh, background uh, count rate, so it doesn't, it's not too easily uh, fooled into hallucinating. It, it knows when it's seen uh, light. <laughs> so you take one of these devices, or perhaps now a, a solid-state device like what, a, a CCD sensor, and you put it at the end of a telescope and start pointing it at stars. Yeah, in the simplest form, and uh, in fact, uh, a lot of this work uh, was pioneered not by our group here, but uh, by some of the California folks and, and uh, by, by Stuart Kingsley. But Dan Wertheimer's group at California 
early on, just tried the experiment of pointing one of these things at a star, and what do you see? Well, you see, you see a dribble of light from the star, um, but you don't see a bright flash ever. You just see single, single mm-hmm. photons, and you can uh, split the beam and use two of these things to make sure that they're really uh, not just seeing single events or their own uh, dark count, as we call it, but a true flash of light. So the simplest, simplest apparatus that seems to work in this business is a telescope, a beam splitter, that is a, a 50-50 mirror, and uh, two of these photomultipliers electrically wired so that you only report when both of them see, apparently see a flash of light at the same time. And we should mention that your uh, colleague at Berkeley on, on this end of the country, uh, a colleague in SETI, I should say, Dan Wertheimer, will probably join us on the show in the next few weeks. Um, I think it's amazing, and, and a lot of people I mention it to find it rather amazing that we have progressed to the point that we actually have detectors that can that can see, in a sense, a single photon of light. Yeah, well, as I say, that's not that's not even new. I say, you know, that's 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 fifty years old. I, I think what's new is and and even this is not terribly new. These experiments could have been done twenty five years ago. I mm. think it's simply the culture wasn't ready for it yet in, in the SETI community. But I, I think the trick here is having the good telescope attached to the good detectors with good electronics behind it so that you recognize when this has happened when you're pointed at a at an interesting candidate star and you do something about it. We probably will take a break here in the next few seconds because it's a good time to do it, and then we'll come back and talk about the work that you're doing, which is uh, with some support from the Planetary Society, to expand the uh, optical search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and that is using, uh, as I understand it, what will be the biggest optical telescope east of what, the Mississippi, is it? Well, we say east of Texas in the U.S., you know, our main sponsors are you guys and, and a, a curious little foundation called the Bozak Kruger Foundation, Bozak Kruger Charitable Foundation, they're called. Um, and they've been sponsoring us for a decade, and their sponsorship is basically of our graduate students and of a certain amount of equipment in our laboratory. Um, the telescope we're now using for our targeted search is now the largest telescope east of Texas in the U.S., Although, you know, we don't build big telescopes east of Texas for good reasons. <laughs> hmm. And the one we're building now with Planetary Society support is 72 inches, that's 6 feet, now a little larger than the 60-inch or 5-foot telescope we have now. And that, when completed, will be the largest telescope east of Texas. And we'll have number one and number two right here, about 100 feet apart from each other. Well, that's a good teaser. That should keep people around through the break, which we're going to take right now. Our guest on Planetary Radio is Dr. Paul Horowitz of Harvard University, and we will continue this discussion of optical SETI, the search for light, intentionally sent by extraterrestrial intelligence. That'll be when Planetary Radio continues in just a moment. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. You can learn about these adventures and exciting new discoveries from space exploration in the Planetary Report. The Planetary Report is the Society's full-color magazine. It's just one of many member benefits. You can learn more by calling 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. And you can catch up on space exploration news and developments at our exciting and informative website, planetarysociety.org. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. (laughs) 
Matt Kaplan here on Planetary Radio, back with our special guest this week, Dr. Paul Horowitz, who is a physics professor at Harvard University, about to uh, turn on, I guess, the uh, optical search for extraterrestrial intelligence on what will be the largest optical telescope east of Texas, as he uh, told us just before the break. Paul, let's talk a little bit more about this uh, this telescope a, with a six-foot mirror, a 72-inch uh, mirror. When do you uh, expect to have uh, first light? I wish it were just about ready to turn on. Um, <laughs> we've had first light in the sense that we, we can see uh, stars through this telescope, and we've put a little uh, video camera on it. But the electronics to do the all-sky survey, which is the purpose of this new telescope, is still progressing along at the kind of speed that avant-garde projects often do, which is that we're, we're waiting for some special silicon uh, chips that we had to design, especially for the search. My best guess at this point is that we'll probably have first light this calendar year, but not any time real soon. Now, you mentioned uh, a new term, the all-sky search. Talk about that. Sure. The optical study that we've been doing since 1998, that is, uh, looking for bright flashes uh, from good stellar candidate stars, stars like our sun. Well, first of all, that was inspired by, by a wonderful talk that Charlie Towns gave at a set of workshops sponsored by the SETI Institute. It, it certainly brought to my attention something that I really not realized, which is how good optical uh, signaling could be. At the same time, it became clear that it's much harder to do the whole sky because you have to keep out the light from all the rest of the sky, and you have to look at stars pretty much one at a time, which is how teles- optical telescopes tend to work. But this seemed an interesting challenge. Could you do better than one star at a time and somehow cover more than the one millionth of the sky that we're able to cover with our ongoing search now, which, by the way, has looked at about 10,000 stellar candidates. Hmm. But the field of view is so tiny that we basically don't see anything in between those stars. We realized that it is possible using some new detectors that have been engineered only recently. Uh, They're basically 64 independent detectors in one package with 16 of these devices, you can basically look at a thousand places in the sky. At the same time, it's a thousand points of light, I guess. And we figured out that with this kind of detector, we could do the whole sky. That's what we're trying to do with this new telescope, while at the same time, we continue to chunk along on our target list of about 15,000 stars with our targeted search. Uh, so again, this is, this is really an outgrowth of those same um, SETI Institute workshops. And uh, what we've done is uh, gotten ourselves a 72-inch telescope. It's, it's made uh, actually down in Arkansas by a fellow by the name of Ray Damaris, and the detector behind it will have a thousand of these little micro detectors in it, and will cover a stripe of the sky, because these detectors are arrayed in a, in a stripe uh, of about two degrees in declination, that is, in the north-south direction of the sky, and it will be carried around in the east-west direction by the Earth's rotation. So we'll simply let the stars drift through our array of detectors, and in something like 150 clear nights, we will have covered the entire sky. That is a million times more area than our current search with this new detector. I love that thousand points of light. Somebody really ought to tell the uh, senior uh, President Bush about that. (laughs) Well, maybe he's responsible for this search, too. (laughs) I wonder what you might expect to see, or do you have any expectation of what kinds of artificial flashes you, you might see if we are lucky enough uh, for this new instrument to catch something like that. Well, of course, the reason I was mentioning earlier uh, what we could do with lasers on Earth was not because anybody seriously wants to build a billion-dollar laser set up to send flashes, but because we like to game it on both sides of the system. That is, 
what what could one build with plausible technology uh, that would do a good job of communicating? And if you can come up with a good idea there, then at least you have something that you know to look for. Basically, playing that game, we decided that a bright flash is a very good kind of signal because it can be made so much brighter than your own star in the direction of its beam. If the extraterrestrial civilization is being cooperative and comes up with a similar idea, then what we would expect to see would be intense flashes, much brighter than the star for some brief period of time, uh, perhaps in a pattern, uh, periodic or uh, periodic with some pulses missing, perhaps sending some sort of uh, binary signal. Right. You could a- send a-, a number, for instance. Alien Morse code. Yeah, or maybe maybe it's simple. Maybe you don't start with Morse code because they don't know which <laughs> Morse code we're using. Maybe you start by sending the bits of pi or prime numbers or something like that. Mm-hmm. People have talked a lot about what an initial message might look like, but even a simple periodic stream, one of the uh, a pulse for a billionth of a second every second, you get ten of those in a row, and you know that this is not astrophysical phenomenon. They don't do that kind of thing. Or if it isn't a uh, previously unanticipated astrophysical phenomenon, it's one heck of a good discovery in its own right. It's a terrific consolation prize for us SETI searchers. Of course, this this whole area uh, of SETI, uh, how what form would a an intelligent message take is one that uh, people love to speculate about. I believe it was one of Carl Sagan's favorite uh, topics. I love to ask SETI people this next question. If you found a signal, something that you at least strongly suspect has an intelligent origin, what would be the next step? It's a good question. Um, you know, this is pretty astounding stuff, and you want to make sure that you have found what you think you've found. And so I think it's essential at first to make sure that what you're seeing is real, it's not an artifact of your apparatus, and that it can be seen by some other observatory, that it's not an artifact of your location or that you're not being spoofed, let us say. Um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, as Carl Sagan used to say. Yes. I think the very first step would be to ask another observatory to confirm our discovery. And by the way, I should mention that one thing we're doing right now uh, and have been doing now for about a year is we are simultaneously observing with an identical setup installed at Princeton University so that in our targeted search each night as we go through our 30 or 40 candidate stars for the night, the telescope in Princeton, operated by a team of volunteers, is looking at those same stars at the same time. We're synchronized Mm. through Internet communication. Therefore, in some sense, we already have a confirmation or a disconfirmation if we think we've seen something extraordinary. If we see a pulse and they see a pulse and it comes at the exact same microsecond, allowing for the uh, geometry of the two observatories, and let's say we see a periodic train and so do they, we've seen something. But if we were operating in a standalone mode or with a new telescope where we don't have a twin, the first thing we'd do would be to get confirmation confirming observations by us and by another observatory, and preferably at the same time. I think at that point, you scratch your head and you say, is there any plausible astrophysical explanation that we should be considering? Um, This is something that the discoverers of pulsars ask themselves. Yes. At at first, thinking that those might be little green men. They called it LGM, for one. (laughs) Uh Um, You ask yourself those questions, but I think at some point, particularly after you've asked other observatories to confirm this thing, the word's going to get out because after just a few days, you have a dozen or a hundred people who are aware of a pretty incredible astrophysical phenomenon, and not just those astronomers, but their wives and their kids and their dogs all know about it, and pretty soon the journalists are upon you. Yes. And I think you basically have to make a sober and, uh, and factual 
explanation of what it is that you have seen and what it is that you haven't seen and what this may be, but basically caveating your, your uh, announcement with, with all the sorts of things that we have learned uh, over the years in science, which is not to assume more than you really know at any point. Even if that signal doesn't come, and I'm one who hope, uh, hopes that it does, uh, you're having a lot of fun with this, aren't you? Oh, I think SETI is, is terrific exploration. It's, it's, it's something that, that we have to do on Earth. It's, it's, it's inexpensive. It's harmless, I hope. And um, we're really the first or second generation on Earth that has the capability to, to make contact or to receive contact across these, these distances. And there's every reason to believe that other stars harbor life. There are, there are 400 billion stars in our galaxy alone, and there's at least 100 billion galaxies out there. It's, it's unreasonable to expect that what happened here through completely natural processes on a rather ordinary planet, probably uh, orbiting a rather ordinary star, and that we know for sure, did not happen many other places in the galaxy and in the universe. And, of course, discovery of another one of these would, would end our cultural isolation in a deep sense. It would, it would be a bridge across uh, billions of years of independent evolution and independent origin of life. It would be the greatest discovery in the history of humankind. Paul, when it happens, we hope you'll be able to squeeze us in between uh, CNN and Fox. <laughs> of course. Our guest on uh, this segment of Planetary Radio has been Paul Horowitz, professor of physics at Harvard University and leader of uh, a search for signals from extraterrestrial intelligence that would come in the form of light, optical SETI as we call it. Thanks very much for joining us, Paul. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. Diamond rainfall on Uranus and Neptune is just one example of an environment in our solar system that could never exist on Earth. There are plenty of other strange places in the solar system. Our sister planet Venus's carbon dioxide atmosphere is so thick that it behaves more like the ocean than the sky. If you were able to stand the crushing pressure on the surface of Venus, you wouldn't be able to see far through the dense air, and you'd feel the constant gentle push of fluid currents. The largest moon in the solar system, Titan, is a world unto itself with a thick atmosphere that probably hides oceans of liquid methane or ethane. If you could stand on Jupiter's moon, Io, you would witness constant fire fountains of volcanic eruptions. The lava ejected directly into the cold vacuum of space would quickly quench into rounded glass droplets and rain back onto the surface. And because Io is tidally locked with Jupiter, the enormous planet would always appear to sit in the same place in the sky, a giant striped ball 40 times wider than the moon appears in our sky. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org, and you may hear it answered by a leading space scientist or expert. Be sure to provide your name and how to pronounce it, and tell us where you're from. And now, here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Time for What's Up with Bruce Betts, the Planetary Society Director of Projects. Bruce, welcome back. Thank you very much. How shall we start this week? We'll start, as we traditionally do, with what's up in the sky. And we still have lots of good planets to look at. Saturn and Jupiter in the evening. Look for Saturn uh, almost overhead in the, in the very early evening, uh, above Orion. Uh, and Jupiter is very, very bright in the east as the sun sets, and then overhead by midnight. In the morning, we've got 
Venus still exceedingly bright in the east that you'll see any time uh, before sunrise. And if you look harder, you can try to see Mars to the upper right and uh, maybe a smidge of Mercury, but it's tough again uh, to the lower left. Now, is Mars going to get steadily better from now until, what is it, roughly June when it's supposed to be spectacular? Uh, yes. Yeah, it's actually a little later in the in the summer, it will be spectacular, and it, it should be getting better and better. So well, you can you can hold off on Mars and for a stay, few stay tuned to uh, Planetary Radio and what's up, and we'll tell you when it's spectacular. We'll say go outside now. Darn it! <laughs> <laughs> okay, what's next? We have some this week in space history. A lot of big milestones. In February twentieth, nineteen sixty-two, John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth. And uh, February 19th, 1986, Soviet Union launched their Mir space station. And uh, February 23rd, 1987, different twist, Supernova 1987A exploded. This was the first naked-eye supernova since 1604. And an enormous amount of science uh, resulted from yes. that supernova. Uh, great deal. That is correct. Uh, do we go on now to uh, space? Well, I'll let you say it because we might put, put some echo behind Oh, please, oh, please. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Random Space Fact! He's getting really good on the microphone, too, folks. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Random Space Fact. This week, we're going to tie it a little to last week's trivia contest. Traveling at the speed of light, it takes over 12 hours for radio signals to reach the farthest spacecraft from Earth. Round trip communication takes over a full 24-hour day. So we're talking 12 light hours, roughly, a little bit more, as opposed to... What is it, four, four and a half light years for light to get here from Alpha Centauri? Right. And if you want to, but comparing in the other direction, about eight light minutes for sunlight to get to Earth. So so that spacecraft's getting out there. And which spacecraft is that? Well, that would be the answer to <laughs> last week's trivia contest. What is the most distant object from Earth that was built by humans? The answer, Voyager 1. Now, we had a lot of entries, and uh, folks, I am sorry to say that all of those of you who simply said Voyager, not specific enough. We were looking for Voyager 1 or Voyager 2. Now, those of you who said Pioneer 10, yeah, but displaced chronologically. If you had said that, oh, five, six years ago, you would still be right. But in fact, Bruce, Voyager 1 has... Voyager 1. By the way, those of you who just said some spacecraft, that also is not specific (laughs) enough. Right. We're sorry. But do try again next week. And here's our winner, Daniel Nascimento. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Daniel Nascimento of Cambridge, Ontario, our first Canadian winner. So uh, congratulations, Daniel. You'll be getting that uh, T-shirt from the Planetary Society. Congratulations. So we move on to our new trivia question. New trivia question. What planet has the highest average density. So what planet in our solar system has the highest average density? Now, when you mentioned this to me just before we started recording, I thought average density, that's that's a key part of this. And, and I actually guessed right. I'm really proud to say that, but it was partly out of my own ignorance of some of the planets. So this one ought to be one that people ought to be able to look up pretty well and, uh, and find on their own. Uh, and uh, once they do that, Bruce, how do they enter the contest? Go to planetary.org, follow the links to Planetary Radio, and it will tell you how to enter the contest. One other thing to uh, throw on this week, which is also on planetary.org, 
uh, as a uh, response to the Columbia disaster. The Planetary Society does have a declaration of support for space exploration up that both uh, expresses our deepest sympathy to the families, friends, and loved ones of the seven astronauts and also uh, a support for space exploration and its future. And you can go to our website and add to the already almost 10,000 names of people who have done that, and we will eventually present that to NASA. And we want people to, uh, to remember, I think, that this is not just for members of the society. Anyone can go there, right? Right, exactly. This is for anyone and is uh, just trying to, to show support in a, in a troubled time for the space program. Bruce, thanks very much. Uh, we'll do it again next week, right? We certainly will. It'll be fun and festive. <laughs> I guarantee it. All right, Bruce, we'll see you then, and uh, happy post-Valentine's Day. And happy, yeah, and post-Groundhog's Day to you, too, as well, Matt. Bruce Betts. Take care, everyone. Buckle up. Drive safely. Thank you. Good night. Bruce Betts is the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, and he will join us again for next week's edition of What's Up Here on Planetary Radio. That's it for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening, and especially to everyone who has written to us. We try to answer every message. You can tell us what you think of our little show by sending email to planetaryradio at planetary.org. That's planetaryradio, all one word, at planetary.org. And remember that you can find all of our past shows and a lot of other great information on the Planetary Society website, planetary.org. Have a great week.